Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. We'd like to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us as we consider and factor the Word of God into our lives and hopefully your life as well. Today we're going to be looking into Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. In just a few moments, Mike will be leading our study today. But before we do that, I'm going to turn it over to Paul. And Paul, if you would, let everyone know how they can participate in today's study. Absolutely, John. You can go to truthfactorlive.com and look at the live viewing page. Or as you might want to send us an email, you can send it to questions at truthfactorlive.com. If you're involved in any social media like Facebook, uh, YouTube, or Twitter, you can do that uh, and just search for Truth Factor Live as well. And in any of those, you'll have an opportunity to interact with us in some way. My personal preference is just to go to the YouTube page youtube.com slash truthfactorlive and there is a chat window once you get to the uh, the live video uh, and you can just interact with us very easily that way but the others work as well and so that's that's up to you we look forward to your interaction uh, for you to communicate with us if there should be some personal remark that you'd like to make to any one of us you can send it to us at truthfactor.com mine is paul uh, at truthfactor.com uh, tom john brian Michael, uh, I mean, that's probably Mike and Shelton. Uh, John, uh, correct me, is that uh, truthfactor.com still or is it truthfactorlive.com? These will still be truthfactor.com. Truthfactor.com. And so yep. uh, right now at the bottom of the screen, you'll see there uh, my email address, but the other guys have theirs as well. And feel free to reach out to us individually that way or collectively at questions at truthfactorlive.com. We look forward to you participating in our study today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that very much. Let's go ahead and get our study underway today. Mike, I'll throw it over to you, and you can lead us into Acts chapter 20. I'll do the best I can. Thank you, John. In Acts chapter 20, we find a great many things that are found nowhere else in all the Scripture. And we'll try to point those out as we go through. But uh, to be quite honest with you, I jumped the gun a little bit on our chat room question, the first one which is this, what would be the significance of staying seven days in Troas? If we read on down through verse 6, which is our first section, you may have a little trouble answering that, but uh, everybody's up to a challenge, and maybe our viewers can, can figure that one out. Uh, I'm just going to go down the line from the screen here. So, Thomas, I'm going to go to you first and ask you please to read through verse 6. Okay, hold on one second here. Uh, my, uh, hold on one second. You know what? Have somebody else read, please, Mike. Sure, Mike, can do. Let, let's go Mike, to Shelton. Mike, Mike, you're backing up. Okay, Shelton, if you're ready, you just go ahead and read down through verse 6. You know what? Have somebody else read, please, Mike. Sure, sure can do. Let, let's go Mike, to Shelton. Mike, Mike, you're backing up. Oh. Have we got rid of the echo? <laughs> I think we're good. That was my fault. My apologies, Jim. No problem. No problem. Just making sure before I started reading. Uh, okay. I'll be reading in chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. 
And Sapater and Berea accompanied him to Asia also. Uh, Aristic, Aristarchus and Secundus of the, Thessal of the Thessalonians and Gaius and, and uh, Derby, and Timothy and, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Tom, that Good was a job. Good, making me read that instead. Good, <laughs> Good job on those names, Shelton. Uh, an, an old man's hint. Um, if, if you can't pronounce it, call it meat and house and go right on. Uh, <laughs> it'll work. Uh, we, we, we start this chapter with Paul leaving the uproar, which was in chapter 19 uh, at Ephesus about the goddess Diana. And sometimes in reading and studying uh, any book of the New Testament, we read rather hurriedly uh, and get down to the end of this 20th chapter and find out that Paul is talking with the elders of Ephesus again. And it seems rather rather speedy uh, to leave and then come right back. And, and in our minds, because of our speed of studying, we think, well, hey, this just been a couple of days. But let's point out, first of all, that there are at least three months before he even gets to Troas. So there's going to be quite a span of time here. Um, that'll bring us to the first question, and, and I'll throw this one over to Paul as we go down the line. How about describing for us, please, Paul, um, this journey that Paul takes from verse 1 through 3? Well, uh, sure. I, I can just go uh, go right through that. Uh, we see that, uh, that they had that uproar, and then... Uh, he departed for Macedonia. Uh, it says that he was in, it seems like he's encouraged and there's brethren who interact with him at, at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had gone over the region, encouraged him in many words. Then he went to Greece. He stayed there three months. Uh, and then uh, he decided to return back through Macedonia. And so uh, there's this uh, significant time spent in traveling and significant time spent interacting with different brethren in different places. Well, and that brings us to the next question, which uh, these, these companions are mentioned here at verse 4. And uh, Brian, if you would, just go ahead and list those companions and give us what comments you may about those individuals. So, so it's interesting uh, that Paul always had kind of an entourage with him, a group of men, that I would suggest that a lot of times he would leave behind after he had preached the gospel somewhere, that they would do the work of an evangelist. Uh, we have Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. Uh, it's kind of interesting that we're probably all very familiar with Timothy, who in First and Second Timothy we see uh, uh, letters specifically to. We also know though that Tychicus, for example, is mentioned in a number of Paul's letters, that Tychicus was a pretty constant companion of Paul. He was somebody with Paul a lot. He is called a minister. Uh, we would probably say he's called an evangelist or a preacher as well. Uh, we know that Aristarchus would later on become one of Paul's fellow prisoners, that he'd be arrested with Paul and be in chains with Paul. Um, we know there's another Gaius in Scripture, but Gaius is a pretty common Roman name, and it may not be the same Gaius referred to in 3 John, but uh, also it well could be. Um, trying to think if I missed somebody in that list. Uh, Trophimus uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 was still one of Paul's companions, but he had been left behind as being sick, so he couldn't be a part of that as well. It kind of gives us a sense of how Paul worked, that Paul, uh, and, and this is a bit of maybe a, 
just putting some ideas together that Paul seems to go to somewhere. He preaches the gospel, and then he might leave one of these men behind to, as he told Titus, to set things in order uh, by organizing the church and the scriptural method, or like with Timothy, to preach the word, to be ready in season, out of season, to rebuke and exhort with all patience and long suffering. So, so we just get a good glimpse of those men that traveled with Paul to aid him in doing that work. Seems that it might also, Brian, agree with the Lord's statement that came from Old Testament uh, principle that in the mouth of two or three witnesses would every word be established. So Paul leaves behind these trusted individuals that won't change God's word. They're going to be consistent with it, and that helped increase the the, the strength of, of the brethren, which their faith obviously came by hearing the word of God. So, Tom, let's come back to you and, and ask you to uh, complete this for us at verse 6. Who are the we in verse 6? Well, very simply, what that means is that Luke, the writer of this letter, was with him on this occasion, or at least this part of his journeys. You know, one of the interesting observations to make about all these different names is it shows the historicity of this document. It shows the historical accuracy. And secondly, we find that Paul, and he's a lot like Jesus, he had this, if you want to use the term entourage, that accompanied him, and it was constantly changing. But he always had, almost always had other people with him wherever he went. And that's why he was able to send people in different directions and receive people and so on. But here we have Luke among the group. I appreciate that. Now, if uh, I don't know if people had time yet to respond to the question. And as I said in the beginning, you may have to read a little further to get the actual answer. But we note at the end of this first reading that they stayed in Troas seven days. And the, the chat room question is, what would be the significance of staying those seven days in Troas? Have we got an answer yet? No, Mike, we don't have an answer yet. Well, then, John, while you're on the, on the voice here, go ahead and answer that one for us. Well, let's see. Let me get rid of your lower third there. You know when my mouse decided to die? Just when I asked you the question. Yeah, and I can't do anything. <laughs> go to someone else, and there'll be Tom as well. i got to grab a battery. All right. Paul, do <laughs> you want to take that one for us? Well, something we might notice if we read on ahead uh, a little bit is that it's on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Paul was there with them and continued his message until midnight. So to stay the full seven days to allow him to be uh, with them on two first days of the week when Christians would assemble. That's, that is absolutely correct. We need to point out that the, uh, the Lord's Supper has often said that it's the most important part of the worship. I'm not sure I could agree uh, expressly with that statement, but I would say that it is the most solemn part of the worship. It is to put us in remembrance of the Lord's death till he come. And I'd point out as well that many people have, have added uh, that it reminds us of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Well, certainly that's the sequence. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's very specific that we remember his death till he come. This was very vital to Paul and to his companions. It's vital to all Christians. And so obviously they would have stayed that time for the purpose of remembering the Lord's death. Till he comes. So let's factor this in. There, there's only one passage is here at Acts uh, 20 and verse 7 
there's only this one passage to tell us when the disciples came together to break bread, but it's absolutely enough authority to cause us to be faithful in that practice. We don't need three dozen scriptures to tell us on what day. This one's enough. And to, uh, to do this each first day of the week is quite important to the remembrance of our Lord. Yeah, yeah and... and- and and I I guess people could make other types of arguments, but the point that I would make is if you want to guarantee your right with God, it's clearly obviously it's clearly clearly obvious if you partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, you know you're doing what you're supposed to do. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the there, are that, there are those that would argue how many times in in a year should you do this? Well, there's always a first day every week. Exactly. Just like there's the Sabbath every week. And incidentally, uh, they they have no problem with first Corinthians 16 verses one and two and the first day of the week there, you know, every week. I I was going to make a suggestion uh, a little different than what Paul said earlier. Um, Seven days of the week. I always read this to and understand it, that it was uh, as though they arrived on a Monday and stayed through the Sunday, that that would be the seven days. Now, I would say if if that is accurate, that lends even more weight to the significance of the first day of the week, because Mm -hmm. what that means is we're told later on Paul is in a great rush to get back to Jerusalem, that he's in a hurry. And yet, first of all, he's an apostle. And second of all, he, as I said, he's in a great rush. Neither of those things constitute an authority to move that assembly from any other day. In other words, if we wanted to meet with the saints to take communion, even he, an apostle, in a hurry, couldn't have them say, well, let's meet on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, any other day. But he couldn't move it. Yet he did not have the authority to call that assembly together for that purpose. It had to be that first day of the week. So, so that would tell us if that's accurate. And as I said, perhaps, as Paul said, maybe it is meant to include two first days of the week. But if it is a Monday through Sunday, seven days, then what was interesting there is that that means Paul could not compel them to move that day. Because that day is set in stone, so to speak. If I could take a moment to respond to Brian's railing against me. (laughs) Uh, Not really. Uh, I I have no problem with that reading. In fact, in looking at it, that's probably... uh, The the point remains the same. Paul wanted to be there on the first day of the week. and Whether it was uh, that he, he was there and then stayed seven more days or whether he arrived on Monday and wanted to stay through the first day of the week. I have no 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 issue with that. Uh, I think the point is the same. So thank you, Brian. It is. I really do appreciate that. Let, let's add to that too, gentlemen. That here is something that Paul would not ignore. He could have said, you know, we've been here, we've been here six days. Let's get moving and forget it all together for us. The point is well taken. That this being an important part of remembering our Lord, Paul wasn't about to miss it nor move the day. This, this is why we insist ab- upon Acts 20 and 7 as being a very vital part of, of Scripture, a very important part to teach us when and where and how we must worship God. Well, okay, Shelton, let's come back to you now and look at verses 7 through 12, course, please, and, uh, and we'll get some discussion on it. All right. You want me to read Seven through twelve, please. Okay, absolutely. You did a good job the first time. We'll see how you do now. All right. In verse seven, it says, "Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. 
And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken, uh, broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. I appreciate that, Sheldon. Uh, just before we go to the chat room question, just a quick comment about this. I'm old enough to remember that going to services in countries in the country, there were a lot of times in the summertime where the buildings were so full that folks actually sat in the window. But uh, I don't remember anybody ever falling out of a window. I do remember several people going to sleep through the sermons, and I still remember that. But we'll come to that in just a little while. Let's go to the chat room question here for this one, and uh, it's it, we're, we're not skipping verse 7, but I think we've discussed it. This question is, is there ever a reason for today's preachers to preach till midnight? And that is to preach longer than the, than the usual half hour to three quarters of an hour or so. If there is that reason, what would it be? And I, I'll go ahead and admit that I am not opposed at all to lengthy sermons. I'm one that generally will go 35, 40 minutes. As a, uh, I grew up that way, and I'm not embarrassed to go that long again. But is there a time, and might we think about it, where preaching long sermons, and remember that later on Paul continued his speech till break of day, so this was an all-nighter. Is there a reason in today's world for such type of preaching? Let's begin at, at question two on our outlines that the audience doesn't see, but let's go to question two, unless you've got more question, more comment about verse seven, and ask this. They were gathered in an upper room. Is there any spiritual significance to having an upper room? Mike, I don't, I don't see it that way. Yeah, there's, in other words, there's no significance to that. When, whenever saints assemble together, we have the responsibility of wherever we assemble to worship God. Um, the fact that we have a bit of a specific instance here being given in regards to where they met doesn't bear any spiritual significance that I see. Well, I appreciate that, John. And the only reason I ask this, there are people throughout the United States uh, religiously that would say that you've got to do these things as, as the pattern was throughout the New Testament, even to the point of an upper room. Well, there's some places in our country where two-story houses are just not very common. It isn't the place. It is the fact they gathered to worship. So that brings us to the next question here. Yeah, Would, uh, go ahead. Mike, go yeah, ahead. Just real quick, bear in mind that the culture back then, it was not unusual to have that second story. Oh, or three as we find here. That's, yeah, that's yeah exactly. And, and, and that's the point. That was very common back then. And, and, and typically that second story would be the living area or things like that, which is why they would be up there. Could well be. Probably cooler. They didn't have air conditioning or whatever. So, I mean, well, there's a lot of reasons and they're all physical, practical. They have nothing to do with the observance of the Lord's Supper. Well, and that's exactly right. So, Tom, while we're with you, go ahead and relate this story of Eutychus. Verses 9 through 12. 
Okay, so basically what we have here is while while Paul is preaching, is that he's sitting in a window and uh, and uh, I think he said what the third story, and, and and he falls asleep and he basically falls out of the window, and, and he's, he he dies as a result of it. But Paul goes down and he actually sees him, embraces him, and and uh, uh, basically brings him back to life. So Paul raises the dead is what happens here, uh, and. Uh, and it was a complete healing because verse 11 tells us uh, when he had come up, uh, 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 they broke bread and so on. So I, I think you have a complete healing here. And so Paul is doing this. So that's what I see in that as yeah, happening. Does it make it unscriptural to sleep through the services? And I'm not really being sufficient, sufficient, uh, fussicious in that. There, you there's know, a lot of people, quite honestly, that just can't, can't do it. help it. Yeah, I, I've I've met several of them. They work outdoors uh, constantly, and they come into a building that is comfortably air conditioned. The seats are comfortable. Their bodies are tired, and all of a sudden, there's a, kind of a drone of of speaking going on, and they just drift off. But, well, Michael. Don't you think that they ought to quit working a couple of hours earlier every day so that they can get enough rest? <laughs> and, 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 and I'm, I'm obviously But haven't you heard something similar to that? Oh, I have. You know, I have indeed. Uh, yeah, 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 over and over. And, and like I said, I mean, things happen. You know, what about somebody that has a, uh, an ailment? Uh, exactly. And I've had relatives that had these type of ailments. The point here is, the man had gathered for this purpose of, of hearing Paul's sermon. That That's why the groups gathered together here. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, I can't imagine sitting in a windowsill for very long and being comfortable in it. I've sat in a few windowsills, believe it or not, and I don't know of any of them that are extremely comfortable. So to fall asleep and then drop out of the window, you know, it's going to disrupt the service. But let's go to the next question. You know, uh, the big lesson here seems to be that when a man named Paul is preaching, it's dangerous to sleep. Okay. <laughs> you know, we need to add sound effects to this study. Little quick keys that I can hit over here. The Paul Adams No, I, I agree with what you said, Mike. Uh, <laughs> there are those who have medical conditions, medications they take. It's not their fault. It's not that they're disinterested. Uh, it's not people an insult that, to the speaker. People uh, that purpose to go to sleep, though, just for the sake of doing it, yeah. that's rude. Yes. Well, and yeah, or, or they haven't made preparations. That's true. And, 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 and that's the other side of that. I mean, it's possible to just live your life so that worshiping God is not as important. And Exactly. Exactly. Let's come to that next question, though, with this. This, this was an unusual instance. So Paul is doing the preaching. Eutych falls out of the window. What follows you sleep immediately with that? What follows immediately with, with Eutychus being raised to life? What follows immediately with that? Uh, go ahead with that, Brian. Uh, so uh, I think that the, the consideration here is that after that happens, it says that they uh, uh, he came up, broke bread and ate, and they talked until daybreak. So... Um, is that is that what we're kind of thinking about? What happened that, right that, after that? Yeah. So the worship service wasn't ended just because it falls out of a window. 
that comes back into what I what I'm talking about in the chat room question. So maybe it it will come to a greater clarity for us. There are those people that are absolutely opposed to what is known as long-winded preaching. But let's think about this occasion. Paul is here, and and I'm going to assume this is still uh, uh, well. It's it's in the Troas area for sure. But as Paul is speaking here, what he has to say is of such great value that obviously this is the only opportunity he has to impart this information to these people. He's going to take the time to tell them. But the the flip side is the people are not anxious to run away from hearing it. They stay to hear this. He continued his speech until midnight. This is is so vital to things that nobody is is shown leaving this area. The brethren are not a little comforted about this, meaning that their appreciation for Paul raising Eutychus to life and continuing his speech till, till the break of day was valued to them. Let me give one very clear example of it, and then I'll turn it back for your discussion. Of an individual that came to a preacher one night, and the preacher thought this fellow had been a member of the church for several years. It was it was about midnight when he came to this preacher, and he simply asked the preacher, he said, convince me that there is a God. They began to study, and rather than use Bible with an atheist mind, the preacher used scientific facts and noted them on a piece of paper, and after they discussed it for a while, went to the scriptures and showed him there is an empty space to the north. Uh, he hangeth the earth upon nothing. Um, all the rivers turn to, run to the sea, and yet the sea is not full, and all these kind of things. And finally asked this young man, he said, now, if, if all these scriptures here in, our, in your Bible agree with that science, what about the scriptures in between? The end result was, that after maybe five hours of studying with this individual, he was baptized. Was the length of the sermon worth the time? I think we'd all have to agree that most certainly was. So let's go back to the chat room question. I don't know if there's any answers to it or not, Brian, you would know. Are there answers to that? It looks like Grant. Let's see what they say about it. Good, Brian. We'll start with Gregor. Okay. So this one is from Gregor Hinckley. Gregor says, quality versus quantity. For me, it is about the order of worship. That is established by the elders. Would it be wrong? I think not, but it would be based on the elders. Okay. So, so Gregor, oh, and then Grant Haynes says, the limit we put on sermons today might have more to do with our attention span than a lack of material to preach. If people can stay attentive to the lesson, then there is no issue with the long and that's true. The old saying is the sermon's only as good as long as the seat holds out. So, you know, we, we've got to be, we, as preachers, we've got to be attentive to that and respectful to other people. By the same token, preaching is teaching and teaching is preaching. It's just a difference in spelling as far as I'm concerned. You're imparting God's word. Regardless of how long it takes, as long as that individual is willing to listen and study, you don't need the breaks. Go ahead about the truth. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was just going to, you know, I was going to add, Mike, it's kind of interesting. Uh, one one big difference is that Paul was probably telling these people things that they had not heard before. I'll, I'll probably say 
any sermon I've ever preached in my life, I can't think of a time where I sat down with an audience that hadn't heard what I had to say. That, that by and large, anywhere I've ever preached, 90% of what I'm saying, 90% uh, of the audience, uh, so I'll, both, I'll make those statistics up, but, but the vast majority mm -hmm. of what I have to say to the group I'm saying it, they've heard it before. So it's absolutely all, it would have been completely different. They, he might've been saying things they'd never heard before. Uh, and so it, it, it might really be a distinction in, in the characteristic. Maybe that's what, you know, Grant and Gregor were kind of pointing towards the idea there that, you know, it would be a different type of sermon altogether. It would, it would. And so it's, it, I, I appreciate the comments that it's not the, the, uh, the, the quantity, it's the quality quality may extend the quantity, but nonetheless, it's, it's teaching the Word of God. Well, let's move to verses 13 through 16, and let's see. We're up to, I think, Paul Adams' time to read here. So, uh, let if you would, please, Paul, would you read uh, Acts 20? Where are we at here? Acts 20, uh, 13. 13 through 16. Be happy to do that. Mike, uh, Acts 20, beginning at verse 13, it says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on, on board, um, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. From there, uh, we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos, and stayed at Trigilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul having, had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Thank you, Paul. And again, my compliments on the big words. Um, some of those are kind of confusing at times, but I, I appreciate it. The chat room question, what's meant by the day of Pentecost at verse 16? Uh, I, I thought maybe that might be some study from our listeners, and so we'll we'll look at that. There's obviously quite a bit of significance, and uh, you might even want to talk about uh, any religious significance as far as Christians are concerned, the day of Pentecost. But our first question, let's see, uh, we're, I think, back to Shelton on this one. What would have been the intention of Paul to walk instead of sail to his destination? Well, I mean, I haven't really checked a map in this study to see kind of where he was, you know, headed from to where he was going topographically. Uh, it could have just been that that was the best route. Um, but, you know, something that takes me to mind when you, when he would have taken a ship somewhere, the only people that would have been on the ship with him were his companions that were traveling with him. If he's on foot, he's stopping in various locations. He's teaching the word of God. He's encouraging people. Uh, as he goes where he needs to go. And so, you know, I think if he's going on land, he's going to have a greater effect on a greater amount of people than if he was to take a ship to his destination. You're exactly right, Shelton. And that's that's why I'm glad it turned out that, that the youngest on the panel gets this question because it gives the rest of us a little chance to add to our, uh, to our wisdom and advice, which is worth just what you pay for it. And you don't owe me a penny. How many people will you and I ever meet in our life who do not need the gospel of Christ? Uh, very, very few. I think the bigger percentage of people we will meet are going to be those who need it. So that 
no matter where we are or what we're doing, even if it's such insignificant things as standing at the grocery line, paying the cashier, might it be wise to introduce the gospel of Christ to those people? Absolutely. They, I, think, I think Jesus shows that with his teaching, not to get too far into this. I, I think this is things that we know, but, you know, through just regular events throughout the day, Jesus would take time to introduce the gospel uh, to people. And, and the response that he got a lot of times from that was great because we, especially us not being divine, not being deity, we don't necessarily know who it is that's searching for the gospel who it is that is is looking for Christ and looking for that peace and that salvation. But yet when we are given those doors of opportunity by God to to not walk through that door might be, you know, our fault. You know, that's something that maybe that person's looking for it. They've been given this opportunity. They meet us, but then we don't take advantage of uh, trying to bring salvation to their soul. Paul's statement always comes to mind with this, where Paul said, if our gospel be hid, is hid to them that are lost. If lost souls are that way because no one has shared the gospel to them, then what's going to do with those who have the gospel and refuse to share it? I, th I think the fate would be equally the same, if not more severe. So I appreciate that answer, Shelton, and I appreciate your work and your desire to become a gospel preacher. You're doing well at it. Uh, Tom, let's go back to you. What was so important about Ephesus with Paul? Well, he had spent a lot of time there. He, uh, we know that what he says in this text there, he had spent three years, at least in that area. We, we, know, uh, we know from the last chapter, two hours or two years and three months minimum. Uh, so, so he had spent a lot of time with him. And so he had developed a relationship with him. And, and, I, and I think that's why he wanted to, to deal with him. You might also add to that that, the way it's described when he was in Ephesus, he preached all throughout Asia. So dealing with the elders in Ephesus would have an impact beyond the walls of, e of Ephesus. Oh, most certainly would. Most certainly would. Let's see if we've got an answer to the uh, chat room question. What's meant by Pentecost at verse 16? Mike, I don't believe we have an answer to that question. I believe, uh, uh, I don't see that we got one in any of our chat forums. So. All right. Well, while we're at you, Brian, go ahead and you give the answer. Sure. So, you know, Day of Pentecost has a lot of importance to the Jews. It's one of the three feast days they're required to be in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Of course, to the Christian, Acts chapter 2, the Day of Pentecost was also the day that the kingdom was opened for business, so to speak, that, the, yeah. uh, that we see the first people brought into the church. So there's the significance of that as well. Mike, I think it's kind of interesting, and I'm not sure if this is kind of what you were thinking about, too, that Jews were required to come to Jerusalem for the Passover and stay till Pentecost. Paul isn't, isn't in a hurry to get back in time for the Passover, though. He's in a hurry to get back in time for Pentecost. Yes. And the subtle reminder there is that, is that Paul's dedication is not to the law of Moses. He's not going to Jerusalem because as a Jew, he's obligated to keep the day of Pentecost because he should have been there for Passover if that was the case. His his intention is to get there before all the righteous Jews have left. And 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 I'm going to suggest that we find out in the next chapter that a great deal of his interest is in speaking to those who, or being a part of those Jews who had come for the feast, who were righteous Jews, that might be opportunity to hear, uh, to hear uh, the gospel. I'm glad you brought that up, Brian. That's precisely where I was hoping you'd go with this. The day of Pentecost to the Christian 
is much like the 4th of July to us today. It, it had no religious significance other than the fact that for the Jew that was still somewhat motivated and got Moses, though the law of Moses had been nailed to the cross, Paul, being a Jew, had every right to be there. And to be there among these righteous Christians was an opportunity he simply did not want to miss. That's why he was in a hurry to be there. So thank you for that answer. We, we did get a comment there at the last moment. Uh, sometimes All right, go ahead. So Gregor Hinckley says, this is 50 days after Passover, hence Penta, it was considered a feast of pilgrimage. So he kind of gives us a little bit of a detail there, too, about a little bit more about the, the background on Pentecost. Yeah, thank you, Gregor. Now, let's go to verses 17 through 24. It looks like we're going to have hopefully enough time. Uh, let's see. Thomas, how about you reading there, 17 through 24, for us? All right, I can do it this time. <laughs> All right. So, so we read here, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but reclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Thank you very much, Tom. Our chat room question for this section is, why was Paul not concerned about future difficulties in his personal life? And that's, that's a very serious question that we'll look at. Now, at Miletus, Paul had sent for the elders of Ephesus, and we've discussed why uh, his endearment to them. He'd spent three years with them. Uh, but in verses 17 through 21, uh, let, let's, uh, let's go to Brian and ask him, give us please a very brief history of verses 17 through 21 of Paul's relationship here with Ephesus. So we know that Paul had spent some time in Ephesus before, and in the last chapter, uh, we also saw how a riot had, had been brought about in Ephesus uh, over the teachings of Paul between the Jews and the Christians there. So Paul had a very, uh, I would suggest a very dear relationship with Ephesus. It's probably a, a place that he used as a launching point to reach to other churches in Asia. Uh, we know he wrote a lot of his letters from there as well. So uh, I would say in some ways this, this was like a home away from home for him. Uh, this would be a place that he was very intimately familiar with. He, he was in a position here as well. Uh, he simply tells him, I, I declared this to you night and day with tears, and I, I went ahead and suffered the trials that were there, the plotting of the Jews against him and all of these things. But he did it for the simple purpose of testifying to both Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. So that he, he was absolutely determined what God would have him do. Now, I don't know why it didn't come out on the outline. I guess maybe my mistake here. But as he um, 
as as he closes his first uh, closes this introduction to them that uh, the spirit uh, he, he there's there's two times the word spirit is found here. The first time is he says I'm bound in the spirit with chains and tri- uh, let's see how is it um, uh, except let's see at verse twenty two and I see uh, and see now I go in the spirit small s to Jerusalem not knowing the things that shall happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit capital H capital S testifies in every city saying the chains and tribulations shall await me, uh, chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear unto myself. The question that I'd hope to put on there, and I'll just throw this to the panel, uh, is there a difference in these two spirits? And if so, what would that difference be? Some people like to say that every time they see the word spirit is talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a illustration to show that's not the case. Anybody want to take that one? Tom, or Mike, let me jump in here for just a moment. To me, this is a very good question of, of whether or not the um, the, pu- the publishers got it right when they chose not to capital, capital versus when they did. Mm-hmm. Reading, the, reading verse 22 and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. I have a hard time figuring out what he could be meaning if he didn't mean the spirit of the Lord. Okay. You know, if... if because he could be bound in the spirit. In other words, he knows this is ultimately the will of the Lord that this is taking place. Like he was told to go to Macedonia, not Bithynia and Asia and so forth. Um, and the difference then with 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. Now he's talking about the Holy Spirit himself testifying through Paul, whereas before he went bound in the spirit of the Lord to Jerusalem. So that the uncapitalized spirit means attitude. I'm bound to serve God regardless, and the Holy yeah. Spirit is the inspiration place. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think 22, this S should be capitalized. Well, it very well could be. You know, it's this, just this my opinion. Reason, this is one of the reasons I brought it up, and it may be a little deeper study than we've got time to go into. We need to understand that Paul was inspired, but the inspiration did not change his. That is, it wasn't contrary to what Paul really wanted to do. So that his allegiance to Christ would not have been changed whether the Spirit had prophesied these things to him or not. He was very willing to put his life on the line to teach the gospel of Christ. That's why the following verse says, None of these things move me, neither do I count my life dear unto myself. And therefore, the chat room question, why was it? Paul was not concerned about any future difficulties in his life. That's really what I'm doing by a backdoor question of this spirit versus spirit. What, why, why was Paul so confident in, in these things and not, not fearful, not scared, and say, wait a minute, fellas, maybe I better rethink this preaching thing? Hey, Mike. Uh, Go ahead, Sheldon. One, one thing I wanted to add there about the spirit in 22 and the, the Holy Spirit in 23 uh, I can I can see both sides of that. Whether it's being Paul's attitude, his mindset, uh, you know, his spirit, his will, uh, or the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think what helps us to understand it the most is kind of what you're saying there. Paul's spirit, his attitude, his mindset, his focus was on the same page as the Holy Spirit's mindset. The Holy Spirit, and, and so he was one with the will of God. The you know the the will of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was with that. He he was not worried about himself, like you're saying. 
so whether that is bound in his own spirit, meaning his own uh, guidelines that he lives by, or whether it's the guidelines that the Holy Spirit is directly inspiring him, you know, he's on the same page, you know, with that. They're, they're one and the same. That's the point. And Paul later would write to uh, Colossae, if he hadn't already, and say to them that uh, we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. So Paul's personal desires really wouldn't have entered into it anyway. He's doing what God would have him to do. He's committed himself to all these things, regardless of the consequence to his own life. And that brings me back to the, to the chat room question. Why was Paul not concerned about future difficulties in life? And though we've answered it, let's see what our audience has said. Brian? Yes, uh, so we do have an answer there from Gregor. Gregor's uh, comment here, or, and Grant Haynes. Uh, so Grant Haynes, uh, I believe we have up first. Paul had a hope for a life beyond this one, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He also knew of Jesus' promise that Christians would have their needs cared for. Excellent answer. Excellent answer. Gregor's got, I like Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9 for this. His peace comes from his confidence in his salvation. Excellent, excellent. So that Paul, Paul had dismissed Paul entirely and allowed his life to be guided by the Spirit uh, via this inspiration and determined that nothing would shake him away from the life lived as a Christian. And that, that's excellent thinking on the, on the part of our listeners. Verses 25 through 31 are a warning that I hope we've got enough time to look quickly, but yet it's a very serious warning here. And uh, Brian, I will, if you will, please, I'm gonna ask you to read verses 25 through 31 and, and uh, put the emphasis here in this sermon where it needs to be. Will do, Mike. Uh, so uh, chapter 20, verses 25 through 31. And indeed, now I know that you will all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Looks like I read too far there, Mike. Sorry. That's fine. That's fine. Not a problem. The chat room question for this is, of all the sermon that Paul presents to the elders here at Ephesus, what part seemed to affect them? And granted, you're going to have to go a little farther than even what Brian read to get that answer. But it seems very strange to me with the great warnings that are here. There's a particular part that they seem to remember the most. And we need to find out if indeed it's the most valuable part. But let's go to question one very quickly because our time is quickly uh, going away from us. What had Paul preached at Ephesus for the three years he was with them? What constitutes this phrase, the whole counsel of God? Paul, would you want to take that one for us, please? Well, I'll try to describe that, uh, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. 
And when we think about the whole counsel of God, I think Paul makes the point that he did not hold back from them anything they needed to hear. And so it was, uh, he did not soften the message or uh, withhold anything from them. Paul talks in other places to the Corinthians that there was only a partial message that he was able to give them because they were so carnally minded. Mm -hmm. But here with the Ephesian elders, he is trying to share with them every useful thing to equip them for the dangers that were present, dangers among themselves, dangers to the sheep. And so uh, we see that, and that would be my, my analysis of that. I appreciate that, Paul. It's not much, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going any farther because you answered it extremely well. That is the whole counsel of God. So now the second question on this at verse 28, we're taught, uh, we're taught quite a bit about the church itself. We're taught about who owns it, what what was paid for it, and yet it seems to have uh, not a name, but it's an identity here of Church of God rather than Church of Christ. Uh, Tom, would you would you want to take this and like say who owns it, what was paid for it, and what's meant by this statement, Church of God rather than Church of Christ? Well, the uh, well, the truth is, is that both God and Christ own the church. I mean, they're in it together. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, as this particular statement says. But remember, in this, we have here we have here a declaration of the deity of Jesus. Yes, that that, that he was with God the Father and the Spirit, for what it's worth. Uh, you know, as this was being determined. I also think of, and since we're dealing with Ephesians. You know, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 is where Paul talks about how the church was uh, in God's eternal plan. It was, it was a part of his eternal purpose. And so I think that that factors in. So even though Jesus purchased the church with his blood, the point that's being made there is Jesus paid the price that made the church viable, that Absolutely. made the church something that uh, that is hopeful for us. Uh, dealing with our salvation and the way that we live our lives and so on. And, and, uh, it belongs to God the Father and, and the Holy Spirit just as much as it belongs to Jesus. So that's well, what I see in this. Well done. Well done. Now, still at verse 28, elders are made what over the flock? Are they in charge of any other flock other than those uh, of the local congregation here? Shelton? Uh, uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, when when we look at other places in Scripture about the qualifications for elders, what the, the purpose for elders is, we, we can get a lot deeper study into this, of course, than what we have time for. Uh, but just looking at verse 28, uh, the point's made very clear that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers uh, of the, the spiritual life, the, the flock there, the spiritual life of the flock that's meeting there. And, uh, you know, like I said, we can get into a lot deeper study on church autonomy, uh, you know, from other places in Scripture. But I think it's important also to see here that the elders are made overseers over the souls of the, the members there at their congregation. But they are not given a place of authority by God to make up their own commandments or make up things that they think would work better for the church there that are not scriptural. Uh, that the authority of the elders only uh, goes as far as the authority of the scriptures. Exactly so. Elders are under the chief elder. That's Christ. And that's well done. 
Now, I'm going to change number four here on your outline just a little bit and throw it to Brian because of the sake of time, I guess. Brian, would you please summarize the warning that Paul gives to these elders and then tell us what it is that they remember most about everything he said? Uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. This is one of the two big prophecies that is found in the New Testament. Well, you should say three, actually. The destruction of Jerusalem, the great apostasy, and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the great apostasy, that falling away that's going to occur. He describes it here by two different maneuvers. He says one is going to be where uh, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, 29. And then verse 30, he says, secondly, some from among yourselves. And, and there's some debate as to whether he means from among the very elders of Ephesus or from among the brethren in Ephesus, that from among yourselves, there's going to rise some who are going to deceive many and draw them away. So, so this is an important prophecy found all throughout the New Testament of a great falling away that was going to happen soon, uh, sooner mm -hmm. rather than later. In fact, later New Testament writers will actually uh, comment on it having begun. That uh, that is important to note there. Mike, what was your second question? I'm sorry. The second question is that yeah, after this very stern warning that these elders should have heeded, most they remember about Paul's message. What was it that they were to remember most about his message? Now, what did they remember most? If we read a little bit farther, just, just a bit farther, when he commends them to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build them up and give them an inheritance among all that are sanctified, and how he coveted no man's silver or gold, but uh, provided for his own necessities and all. And I'm doing this hurriedly for sake of time here. I understand. But at verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely, fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they see his face no more. Now, maybe it's me, but it seems a little strange that after I've been warned very sternly that grievous wolves would enter the flock over the which I'm an overseer, and even among the overseers, there could be uh, false doctrine arise, or from the brethren that I'm working with, false doctrine arise. It seems rather strange to me that rather than being concerned about all that, I sorrow most that I won't see Paul anymore. Hmm. I, any comments in that? No, it's a very, very interesting observation. Well, we're we're just so much out of time, and there's only about forty more things I'd like to discuss with this sermon. But for sake of time, let's just close it down and. And first ask, is there any response to the questions, uh, to the chat room question? Uh, well, I guess we didn't give that chat room question, did we? Uh, well, yeah, we did, of what, of what they remembered most. Was there any comment about that? There, there wasn't, but probably well, good. We just answered it, huh? <laughs> we just did. We just did. Let me close then by saying simply that Paul's, uh, one of the lessons that we need to learn here is that regardless of what we do in this life, regard, uh, regarding uh, earning a living, or traveling, or whatever it is we do. As Christians, our first and foremost obligation is to serve God. Don't let anything interfere with that. If that means stay another six, seven days to, to meet with the brethren and worship God in spirit and in truth, get it done. If that means walking a few miles to go see someone and share with them the gospel, get it done. If you're threatened with even your own life, don't worry about it. God said, God has promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's allowed us that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not fear what man shall do to me. For example, in chapter 20, 
bears all of that much more. Thank you for being with us today. All right, Mike, I appreciate you leading us through the study. Guys, we got any additional thoughts or comments on uh, what we've looked at so far? Let's start with you, Brian. No, I don't. That was a really great study, Mike. I appreciate your thoughts uh, and bringing us through uh, a lot of things to digest here. So it's an important chapter. All right, Paul, any thoughts? No, sir. I uh, thought it was a very good study. Well led, well presented, good discussion. Okay. Uh, Tom? Uh, uh, appreciate the study. Very, very good. Reminding us as elders of a responsibility to watch out for false teachers. I, I see that very, very serious in here. Yeah. Indeed you do. Good study. And Shelton. Appreciated the study, Mike. Lots of good things brought out. All right, I agree. I agree, Mike. I appreciate the, the job you did today in leading us through the study. Um, appreciate the time and effort you put uh, put in developing the little outline here that we're using. When you were talking about the phrase Church of God, it, it, it reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where in that passage there, he's talking about how the, the Christians are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his own peculiar people, or people of his own possession, the his being God, and then coming on down in verse 10, clearly identifies that we are God's people. So while Christ is the head of the church and we are added to his body, fundamentally the body of Christ, the church itself, um, is God's people, uh, mm -hmm. like the Israelites were God's people. Now it is the church. So, If we'd had the time, we could have kicked around the name argument of that, but the time was of a factor. But it is true. They, yeah. Verse 28 is simply an identity. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All righty. Well, it looks like it's time that we pull the study to a close. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments, as Paul mentioned earlier, feel free to send them to questions at truthfactorlive.com. Questions at truthfactorlive.com. If everything goes according to plan, next Wednesday, we will be looking in Acts 21. And I did not check the list. Two is down for Acts 21. Anyone see that? No one. No one. All right. It's potluck then. Let's see how that goes. Um, anyway, we'll get all. What's that? A free for all. Oh, I thought you said Duval. A free for all. I, I, I like that as well. <laughs> All righty. Anyway, that'll be next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon Eastern. 9 a.m. Pacific. 10 a.m. Mountain. And that sounds like it's it. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.